All right. Welcome to episode, we think, six of The Jung and the Restless. I'm Nathan. Matt's here. We've got we've got a couple of well first first uh, I would like to say that I I Matt I saw I was at a, a wedding reception and saw a lot of people that I hadn't seen in a long time and apparently uh, most of them are your friends who are very much our loyal followers all seven of them <laughs> for this podcast they're, they're loyal followers of our two-minute Instagram clips on this podcast. I can only assume that there's maybe three or four who actually make it to the end of the episode, and those are your friends. Yeah, yeah. and they're all fives. Yeah, exactly. exactly. They're all fives who ran out of podcasts to listen to. They keep refreshing their, their podcast feed on Apple until something new comes up, and then it just so happened that it was ours. Yeah. And so there's a couple of fives out there. Who made it That's all the right. way to the end and they were apparently one of your friends was annoyed with me that i didn't share my personal story until episode four or five so which means which means that he listened to uh, to all <laughs> four previous episodes I know. didn't hear my story and then finally episode five he's like it's about time you shared some personal information on here yeah, that's that's right. That's right. So so this week this week we're going to talk about the genogram. We got a couple of grams, a couple of grams that we've we've used as intersections for this podcast thus far. The genogram is is this tool that you use to identify patterns in your family's history, in your family system. So typically the genogram is used to well some of the ways it's used so for folks that are in addiction and recovery it's it's a really helpful tool because it helps them you, you can find patterns of of substance abuse right you can find you can identify patterns of mental health of you can you can literally trace you, you know your you go back however many generations you want to go and you begin to code depending on what you're looking for. So I use it for, for vocational, for vocational identity. You go back three or four generations and you start, you start identifying what every person in your family in your family system does for a living or, or the career changes that they made their education. And you begin to notice that, things don't just happen by coincidence. You start to see patterns. So like in our family, it's, it's, I mean, it's like every other person's in education somewhere, you know? And so yeah, um, at least every other person, at least. Yeah. Yeah. Depending on which family system you're looking at, which unit you're looking at. And so <clears throat> you can, you can start to see uh, what, what I'd say are vocational stories that are passed down. In other words, like this is what's this is what we value in our family system as far as like meaningful work goes. And uh, these are you can also tie them to experiences that you share as a family that are meaningful, right? And so, so anyway, so that's a genogram. It's basically a family tree where you identify patterns, and you can use it to identify anything that you want to. Social workers use this all the time. Uh, it's it's pretty it's pretty common in, you know, with 
with, uh, with therapists and counselors. So, so over Thanksgiving, I sat down, so I mapped our family, our family system and did a vocational genogram. And I sat down with my parents and with Matt and showed them both sides of the family, mom and dad, and took it back to three generations and, uh, sort of presented them some of the findings of our family. And it's just a really interesting idea to talk about. Yeah. So this is interesting because you're probably one of the first to, to use this tool as a vocational tool, whereas most people are looking at biology and heredity and the things that, that get physically passed down through the genes, where you're talking about basically decisions that people make you know, conscious choices or maybe unconscious to, to choose a vocation as opposed to this is what's coded in the DNA. It's a different way of looking at the DNA because you're looking at how people have decided to pursue their careers, you know, making decisions about vocation and, and occupation, whereas people probably haven't thought about doing it in that sense or even paying attention to where the branches of the tree go for those kinds of decisions and those kinds of gener- and through the generations. And I think this would be really interesting if for a young person when they're, cause I, you know, my kids are getting to the point where they're getting closer. Carrington's in high school now. And so they're approaching the stage of life where they're going to have to make decisions about college. And I was just thinking, that in making a college decision, like I, I didn't have any metrics, any kind of, any kind of a rubric. I didn't have a rubric for trying to make my college decision. It was just like, where do I feel like going? Where do my friends go? Where can we afford to go? Where can I get some scholarship money? You know, you're talking about cities. And all of that is applicable, but I'm thinking in preparing my kids to make decisions on college, I would like for them to have some idea of what they want to do with their life before they even decide where they want to go to college. I didn't do that at all. It was like, just show up at college, get a degree, and then someone will probably give you a job once you get out. And it was like, you can just, you don't have to be, you can be undeclared. And I was undeclared for like three and a half years, but you it makes a college me, free agent. I was, I was absolutely, I was trying to, yeah, I was, I was a free agent, but it would make more sense. I think to try to have some idea of what you want to study and what you want to do with that after you're out of college which is, I know that's, I know that's not the traditional, you know, liberal arts education model where you would want to learn a little bit about everything. You would want to learn about history and, and language and foreign language and arts and all of the things and, and then eventually specialize. But that's not really the way we do it now. But if you could go back and look at a genogram and say, well, here's what people in my family in previous generations have done, first of all, you can see what kinds of career paths exist. 
because at 15, 16, 17, you're not even sure. Uh, you, you don't even know. You don't know what you don't know. You don't know what career paths are out there. But then secondly, it's like, okay, well, this is what people who share my genes have decided to do over the generations. And some of these are worth exploring. And maybe that maybe that opens up pathways that you that are not represented or maybe it makes sense maybe you see some opportunities to follow in some of those pathways that have already been established yeah because it's it's part of who you are what you're really doing is you're talking about the stories that you tell within your family system and i don't mean i don't mean necessarily literally your stories but you begin to notice these patterns right vocationally and each of those each of those decisions represents a value and so as you as you look at your genogram as you look at your family tree you're able to not not just be like well i guess this person was you know in sales right instead instead you're like well how did they get there or why did they make that choice and you've you know like talking about your kids and they've got to decide what they want to do you know at some point right and and have an idea before they get to college you got to start somewhere you assume it's going to change and that's part of the role of college right is just to give you you're going to get a bunch like you got to take your gen eds like you got like you got to take your chemistry or your your introduction if you're me the introduction to the fundamentals of global mathematics where I, I encountered and learned how to count in Babylonian for that class, right? But like, th Matt, think about our, do you remember, if you remember our genogram, do you remember how many coaches we had? It was like all coaches. It was like straight coaches. Right. I, I just put, and, and I, it was just kind of on a whim. I was like, man, we got a lot of coaches here. I'm just going to start marking a little C next to everybody. And for, for our, our family unit and for another, you know, for, for, another family unit like like my like our, our aunt and her husband and, and then and then all of their all of their kids it's like there were like three people that at some point hadn't actually coached and so you begin to ask yourself well what does that tell us about our values well matt i would say we come from a pretty competitive family right like um also coaching in in our context is edge is is at a school or a university or something like that typically and so it also intersects with education, right? So if you begin to see like, these are the values that we have in our family and this is how it's expressed as we get older. I don't know. What, what do you think, Matt? Yeah, because, well, it makes sense, obviously, if you, if you look at it historically, because you would pass on not only, okay, so values would be at the top of what you, you know, that's what you, you pass on fundamentally, but then you've got practically you learn how to, if you're being parented and grandparented by teachers, you learn how to process information. You, you see life through the story of a teacher and you see principles. And so then you just sort of adopt that way of looking at the world, that narrative, and you learn how to be a teacher the way you might learn how to be a farmer or a blacksmith centuries ago and so you inherit that story unconsciously because you just because it's it's the paradigm through which you see the world 
And then the, so that's, that's when you're looking at the coherence of one generation to the other, you see where these things link and then you start to see your own story being revealed. The other part of it, this, that I think is interesting is so you see, when you see a, a jump, when you see a gap that doesn't make sense, when you go, okay, well, Pappy had an eighth grade education and then you've got a bachelor's degree, you know, and then dad has a bachelor's degree. Well, then uncle Nate now has a PhD and you can, if you're looking at that on the genogram, you go, okay, something, there was a shift here. Like at some point there was a shift in the trajectory of just specifically education. So you go, what happened, what happened right there? And then you can do, well, you know, obviously as a five, you can do a little bit of investigation. Like I need, I want to know, I want to know what, what Pappy was thinking because he didn't say, well, my, my boys are going to work hard the way I did and they're going to, you know, go to the steel mill or work in the coal mine, or, you know, they're going to work with their hands the way I worked with my hands. No, it was a different, there was a shift there where he says, okay, I I didn't get, I didn't finish my education maybe to the level I I would have wanted to. I didn't have those opportunities, but my kids are going to have those opportunities. Well, what was it that triggered that? And then you can sort of look, okay, now let's look at grandma's side of the family. Okay, so now we can start to see and we can connect some dots to our our great aunts and uncles, our great grandparents on that side. And then you can start to see how the values affect those decisions. So some of it makes perfect sense when you're looking at it on paper, and then some of it doesn't make sense when you just go on at first glance. And that's when I go, okay, this is interesting. I want to see, I want to know what happened. What was Pappy doing when he was 18 to 25? And then what was he doing at 30 to 35 that maybe changed his, that could have changed his perspective in making decisions about, okay, this is what I'm doing with my life. And then this is what I want my kids to do with their life. So you, when you see the, the pattern, obviously everything shows up. We're, we're looking for patterns, you know, we're, we're, pattern making pattern finding beings. And so the genogram lays it out. And so you can see the pattern and then you can see the, where the pattern shifts and you go, okay, this is interesting. I want to know, I want to know more about what's going on right here in this specific instance. Yeah. So this, this, I think is a good example, Matt. I think you actually just illustrated it for us with you and your kids. So whatever, 30 years from now or whenever, if somehow your kids end up looking at a genogram or a family tree or something like that to figure out like, how do I end up doing this? You just, you just articulated a, a vocational story that, that fills in, fills in some of the gaps because what they're going to say is, well, dad, dad really wanted me to have a good idea of what I was passionate about or what I would want to study or what I would want to do before I got to college. And so this is the track that I started on, right? As they, as they begin to look at how they got there and like, well, why did dad, why did dad want you to have that idea before you got there? Right. And it's like, well, because he didn't, he didn't have that idea or he didn't have the right. And so 
So you're actually talking about now the stories and experiences. It's not just about saying, well, you know, you know, like our like dad, dad was an accountant and a CFO and an administrator. And you're like, that's great. That's what he did for a career. Now you're beginning to ask questions about how did you get there and why did you make those decisions? So like, that's a good example of you and your kids. When they look back, they're going to be like, yeah, well, it was really important for dad that we had a, that we had a good idea. And so this is the path that I started on. And if they're going to follow the typical trajectory at this point, they're going to change careers like, like nine times, right? That generation. Right. And so, so they'll be able to look back and say, well, this is where we, this is where I started because when I was 17, I was really passionate about this thing and this is what I wanted to do. Yeah. Well, that was my first thought in, in looking at the genograms is that it's going to, if we look at generationally, if we look at it generationally, it's going to be like one career for our great grandparents, one career path for our grandparents. Okay. Mm, Two for our parents maybe, you know, like one and a half, two for us, it's going to be like three or four. Like yep. I'm talking about generate, not like specifically me and you, but for our, for Jen, I mean, I'm on the edge of, I'm on the edge of Gen X millennial. You're, I guess you're sort of firmly millennial, but for us, it's going to be like two, three, four. And then for our kids, I mean, it's going to be you know, if you're talking, if you're talking about a longer career life, if you're talking about 50 years of working instead of 30 years, I, I mean, the list is going to be, it's like, they're going to have like 20 or 30 co- different career choice. I mean, they won't be, I'm sure they'll be thematic. I'm sure they'll have certain, uh, a certain thread that ties them all together, but there's going to be a lot of variance that now, you've got to go back sort of as a sociologist or a researcher and go, what is the thread? You know, it's like you're, you got, yeah. you've got to try to find the thread that, that connects all the different things that our kids end up doing as their jobs, as a way to make money. And then you've got to, once you find the thread, then you can look at the genogram and sort of figure out how that thread ties ties back in. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing. It's finding the thread. That's why this thing is interesting. And it's especially like with the holidays coming up where, you know, you're just going to spend a ton of time with your family, depending on your on, on the conversations you want to have with your family right. system. You actually may not want to do that, but it's so, it's so interesting to sit down and like, and talk about what those threads are with your, with, your family. Like I, I, I learned things about your experience that I never knew in the, the stories that you heard, right? Because even though we're so close in age, we, we experienced, we experienced our worlds very differently. And so, so you get to learn about that. And, and I think like with, with your kids, man, it's, it's not even that they're just going to have multiple careers, like it's linear, they're going to have simultaneously multiple gigs and multiple careers. That's true. It, right. It's, it's going to be wild. Whereas, yeah, you go back to Pappy and he is, you know, 38 years at the steel mill or you know, whatever it was. And that was like, that was his thing. Um, yeah. And you can see how so. the narrative changes because 
he didn't have any options. And so, you know, he gets out of the Navy, ends up in Ohio, and it's like, okay, he's got a couple of options, but the best option is to go work in the mill. And mm-hmm. th- like, there's no second place. Like, there's no second best option. I mean, you could, I don't even know what would have even been in the running for another career path other than farming. I'm, I mean, I'm sure he knew how to farm, but that was it. Like the mill is hands down the best option. And he's not going through the process of thinking, well, what am I called to do? What do I feel, you know, my inner voice, where do I feel the spirit leading me? It was like, do I want to eat and do I want to get married and do I want to have kids? Okay, I'm working at the mill because I'll get a paycheck and it, it you know, and I will have some job security. And that's that's it, you know. And then you go down one generation, okay, there's there's some more, there's a few more open doors. Okay. So dad could work at the mill. That's a that's a door that's open in in nineteen eighty. Or he has the option of going to get an education. Well, he could study a few different things, but if you're still looking at it pragmatically through that framework that was handed to him, it was like, if you're not going to work in the mill, you need to still, you need to find a, a career path that takes you further economically. That makes more sense. That makes more sense economically than the mill because you're going you're not going, you're not taking the, the easy choice of going to get the steady paycheck for the next 20 or 30 years. Now you're opening the door for other options, but those other options still have to fit inside that framework. Okay. So you get an accounting degree because, okay, that makes sense. Uh, You can see that you can see that what that career path looks like 20 or 30 years from now, the same way you can see a, a career path in the mill. You can project that out into the future. The, the variables aren't that high. Like there's only a certain there's only a certain destination variance when you get an accounting degree. Well, then you pass that on to to us, and now it's like we've got a number of options. Like the mill, <laughs> the mill is not even one of them, and the, the options. The mill doesn't exist. The mill is gone. The mill it's, is gone. Actually, it's gone. Yeah. yeah. There's all we have now are Springsteen songs lamenting the, those jobs. So smokestacks but, reaching like the arms of God into a beautiful sky of soot and clay. I put that Youngstown. one on the platter for it's, you. It's Youngstown. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. We have more options. And because we have more options, now we at least have to start the process of thinking how do I navigate these options? And that's when you start to think about, okay, yeah, certainly there are financial considerations. Certainly there are family considerations, but there are also psychological and spiritual considerations that previous generations didn't have. They didn't have to take that into account because there weren't any, those options weren't out. They didn't, the decision-making process wasn't as complex. It was a simple decision, but now that there are so many options, now you've got to be aware 
of all of the considerations going into it. And so what I guess what I'm saying without having thought this through is that I've got to help my kids even more so to think through those considerations because they're going to have even more options than I did. And so they can see, I can see how that pattern, how that narrative unfolds through just, just the three generations. And now into the fourth, I'm already making considerations based on how that narrative has changed generationally. Yeah. All right. So this is a little bit of a tangent, but I think it's, I think it's really interesting. We've talked about Parker Palmer on this podcast quite a few times. He's, he's at this point, he's mostly like a very reflective, uh, kind of like he's a sociologist, but he's older. He's, he's, he talks a lot about vocation, a lot about identity and purpose. It's, it's, it's really good stuff. And in one of his books on vocation, he, he says that he, he does this thing. He started doing this thing where he started writing down little observations first, first of his daughter and now of his grandchildren about their character, their personality. And what he did with his daughter was as she got older and started making her career choices or her life decisions, he would go back on, go back to his notes and see how she's still the same person or occasionally how she deviated from what he thought she was or what, what, what he observed when she was five. And now he does that like with his, you know, with his grandkids. And uh, I think that's like a really interesting wrinkle. If you have kids that are young right now, or that are growing up to, to just begin making observations just to yourself, right? You just about, about their character, about their personality. And then as they go through the rest of their lives, you can like look back. And that's part of what the genogram does for you. If you do it vocationally is that it, it kind of like maps your own development um that's both independent it's, it's it's completely you and you have agency and also shows you how you are you are definitely the product of a system like you're you're formed in your in your ecosystem so so you have like some biology there right like you know i think about all right so i i, I think about i'll just speak autobiographically i think about going in going into education right you know i, I like I'm a nine. I wanted to do like something different every other time I thought about it, right? For a while. But but the stories that I learned from mom and dad vocationally was that because both are in education, right? Uh, we were super active in in like missions growing up. We were really active in like in our religious community, that, that kind of thing. And so what I learned was whatever I do, it has to have some kind of outlet that's a service. That's what it has to look like for me. Because those are the air quotes stories that I heard growing up. And so as I got older, I, I didn't, I didn't leave that. It's like, it's like my old, it's like my old advisor used to tell me who was a, who was a, I, I'm pretty sure he was a psychiatrist as well as a theologian. He'd say, the shit never leaves you, kid. You just become more aware of the fact that it's there. And he didn't mean it in a, in a pejorative way. He just meant it like whatever you're formed with is there. And so those stories stayed with me. Right. And so there's also some biology in that, in that, you know, I, you and I both got those genes of wanting to compete, right. Of competing with ourselves, of competing with each other, of wanting to, 
to, I mean, I mean, me and Amanda, like of wanting to succeed. And so for me, that outlet was, I'm going to continue in education. That's what it looks like. So it's both my biology, it's my genes and my DNA. It's my family system because it's what I have seen. It's what I know, right? And it's, it's my upbringing because the value that you talked about earlier is that it has to have some kind of service to mankind. It's got to. So you can see all of those things are at play when you trace your family tree and you start looking at who's doing what and why. Yeah. So you bring in another component to this. So Parker Palmer is starting to look at his, his, you say it's his granddaughter or his actual daughter? Both his daughter and now his grandchildren. Okay. So he starts, he starts observing his kids and his grandkids at, and making notes at like four or five years old. So people ask me all the time, like, because I am a social media influencer regarding the Enneagram and people on Instagram think I am the official account of the Enneagram at large. So as an expert in the Enneagram, people ask me, people really do ask me, like, how do you, can you figure out your kids types? They're like, do you know your kids types? And I'm like, yeah, like I knew my kids types when they were two. And so at four or five, they're set. I, I know that different people will say different things. And yes, there are exceptions. And, you know, sometimes things can change for certain reasons. But I mean, I've got four kids. They've all been set since they were really little. And at four or five, it's really clear. And then by the time they're nine or 10, you're like, yep, this is it. So you can, when when Parker Palmer starts listing the ways that their decisions as adults reflect or diverge from how they express their personality at four or five, you can see those and start thinking about those at nine and 10. And, I, and I've been doing this just because I, I didn't make a conscious decision to do this. I, this is just the way I, I think about raising kids is looking at your Enneagram type, what kinds of careers, what kinds of paths make sense where, where your interests and your motivations and your way of expressing yourself and integrating yourself into the world, where do all those things align? And can I encourage you to move in that direction and maybe discourage you from a path that I know won't fulfill what's in your heart? And so then you're talking about being a nine and sensing that, you know, our family values are service. But what I'm looking at when you say that is you're a nine and you want to connect to the family. You want to be connected and your education, educational path keeps you connected in a way that other vocations wouldn't because yours aligns with the values of our family. It gives you that nine sense of connectedness that is so important to you. And go ahead. Yeah. And, and not just, so, so Matt has this, this really great talent of read, reading my mental mail. 
and putting it in like three sentences, what takes me, what takes me like an hour to unpack. And Matt, that's it. I, I was actually thinking about this last night, almost word for word, this, this thought of like, what part of me as a nine, it, it really is like being expressed in this. And it, it, I was like, it's not really the peacemaker. I, I don't feel that in this part. It's connection because it also, education also offers me a way to connect with people outside of our family system as well, like to connect with the world around me. That's, that's the way of orienting myself. And so, so I think, I think you're nailing it there. And on, you know, on, I, I would like on, on your end, you, you know, like you talked about being a five and being an observer, even at like the most social time during lunchtime, literally the most social time that you could find as a kid. And you actually like step away and call it observation. You're making your observations while everyone else is like socially interacting. How does that play out with what you're doing? That's a good question. And I, well, so I'll go back to my story from last week because Joe, Joe is very grateful that you're going back to your, your, your speaking personally. Yeah. We, we need to, we need to bookmark this, this point for Joe so he can come back to minute 37 and, and reference. So, so I, I think I missed, I initially, and this is maybe this is why I, I fixate on this a little bit because I think I missed the the best path for myself at at 18 to 22 whereas i maybe i was overthinking i I was trying to maybe so i really think i was trying to follow a path that made sense on the genogram where it was like okay you you work you find pick a career that's practical that makes sense that you can project out for 30 years financially Okay, here's where I start today. This will here's what it'll probably look like in 10 years. Here's what it'll probably look like in 20 years, and here's what your retirement will look like. And so at 18 to 22, I was trying to find that path. I was trying to find a major I was trying to find a, a career path that looked like that, where in my mind, what I in my heart what I wanted was something that really got me excited intellectually. And that would have been philosophy at the time and, and psychology. And, but that didn't look right. It was like, well, then you got to go to school for another two or three years. And then, well, you know, the job market, you know, it's like, you know, you can't, you can only do one thing with a psych, with a philosophy degree. You can only teach. And I was like, and it was like, yeah. And I was like, I don't know if I even, so I'm trying to project out 30 years instead of just fall, taking the, the, the one step at a time yeah. in the direction yeah. that I felt was prompting me. So I, I think that if I had followed, and maybe if I had been aware that, you know, maybe if I had even been aware of the Enneagram, that, hey, this is not like a five is typically not a great salesman or a five may not be someone you want to hire. Did I disconnect there for a minute, Nate? Just for a brief second. Okay. So a five may not be suited to be a, a manager of a big team, but like, I, and, and the funny part is I didn't want to do that. I don't want to manage anybody. I don't like being managed and I don't like managing. 
but I'm like, I got a management degree. So to your point, I'm just now, you know, between, between 35 and 40, taking a better look at, at what, at the way I'm wired and getting a clearer picture of who I am. All right. I'm having some internet issues here. I'll just pause. I'm going to pause this for a second. And then... We're going to pause here for a moment while we consult our IT team. All right. So we took a little break in the middle of episode six. We didn't have time to finish, but we're going to try and pick back up right where we left off. I was talking about my connection to our family's genogram and, and how that played into my path toward fulfilling my calling or recognizing my calling. And my point was, my observation is that I, I kind of missed my calling at the time, you know, the, the formative time of 18 to 22, when you're trying to figure these things out. And a lot of the doors that I probably should have walked through didn't look like good opportunities. And I didn't recognize the parts of me that were pulling me in the directions that I needed to go in. And I was talking about business management. I was talking about not wanting to manage people, but I had a management degree. I remember my journalism professor said the, the one thing you need to be a great journalist, because I was thinking about majoring in journalism. I just wanted to write. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I wanted to write. And my journalism professor, who was the chair of the journalism department, was a, a really good professor. And he said, the only thing you need to be a good journalist is curiosity. And I was like, I don't know. I'm kind of, I mean, I guess I'm kind of curious. And as it turns out, I'm like endlessly, I'm like the most curious. Like I can't get enough information. Like I need, I always need more details. Obviously that's what an investigator is. Investigator type five is that you're just constantly trying to accumulate more knowledge and more insight which is what a journalist is doing. You're just gathering insights and data and sharing them with the public. But it, for whatever reason, at 20 years old, I didn't recognize that about myself. So it, I, I guess all that to say, it, that's why this subject is so compelling for me is because I feel like there were a lot of missteps or missteps opportunities, wrong turns along the way for me that, that should have been clear, that should have been easier to see, or maybe I just didn't want to see them. I mean, who, who knows exactly, but I want to be able to help others, especially my four kids who are, who we talked about are getting close to that age, but I want to be able to lay out an easy way. It's never, the, the process is not easy, but maybe I should say a simple way a simple way, make it more, make following your, that voice inside of you, make hearing that voice inside of you, make recognizing the parts of you that are pulling you in the right direction, all of, simplify all that so that it's not overwhelming and there's not all of the stress and anxiety. There still will be some of that, but it seems like if we just put some thought into it, like you have with your research, that we can bridge that gap, that reduce that existential anxiety that comes 
in the 18 to 22 year old bracket. And then that revisits in the 35 to, well, if you're at 45, you, you, you're, <laughs> you missed your first existential crisis. It's just come back around to hit you, but yeah. you know, it should be somewhere according to Jung, your thirties, you should be revisiting all of those things that, that you, all of those questions that were raised in your mind in your late teens and early twenties about what am I doing with my life? What am I supposed to be here to do? And, and we've talked about that in previous episodes, but you're going to have to deal with those again when you get to, when you get to your thirties. And I, I don't know, I think it's kind of interesting. We, we've talked about this before, but the Jesus model where he's 12 and he recognizes his calling at 12 and he's like in the temple and his parents are looking for him. And he's like, where did you think I was going to be? Like, I'm about my father's business. Like get a, he's like, mom, get a clue. Like, how did you not recognize this? But that's the, obviously the ultimate example for us. We all should be so assured in what we were put here to do. But then at 12, he recognizes it. And then he starts at 30, which I think is in psychological terms, it's, it's exactly right. It's, it's like, right. It's the nail on the head of what the, what those patterns look like and how they, it's like he, he recognizes it at 12. And then when it comes time to revisit it, it's like, yeah, I like, there's no hesitation. And we could probably get into more archetypes about his mom you know, his mom raising the question at 12 and then raising the question again at 30 and, and initiating him into that journey. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I think there's a lot, there's a lot right there that we could unpack. Like, I think what's interesting, if, if we're looking at Jesus as an archetype, it, he doesn't even do it his, his way. What I mean is, yeah, he seems to be like very self-assured. Right. Um, but when he steps into his calling, it's actually under protest. It's his mom showing up, you know, somebody showing up and saying, hey, there's a crisis. This is, this is going to be uncomfortable and embarrassing. You can do something about it. Jesus, use, use your powers, right? And his, his response is, it's not my time. I'm not ready, right? And, and then he does it anyway. And right. so it's interesting that it's not it's not like it's not like a perfect fairy tale story in the sense that like he knows you know it's it, he, that he gets to act on his own accord or that that it's all perfectly lined up the way we like to think about it. No, he's dealing with expectations of his ecosystem that are projected onto him, and that's like the most human thing you could possibly experience, right? And that's what I think about Matt when when you're talking about your like your, your, your journey is that I, there's no formula for it. Like, even if the truth claim of Jesus is true, which is that he is all of humanity and all of God at the same time. So the fullness of both, then if he is the fullness of humanity, then, then there's not a very good roadmap for following your calling, man. Right. We get like a random glimpse at 12 when he's super self-assured and he's ready to go for it. And then at 30, he's arguing with his mother about whether or not it's his time. And so I don't think there's like a formula, but I do wonder what happened between 12 and 30, 
right? And that's kind of like the question that that you bring up that I think is interesting. Is like, why are you able to see this at forty and you weren't able to see it at twenty? What what kind of what kind of factors in your life give you eyes for it now that you didn't have then? Well, and I think that brings us, I think that brings us back to where we started with the genogram, in that looking at what's passed down to you, because we as a, as a culture, even as a Christian culture, as a, it's more like as a modern culture, have not done a very good job of handing down the tools, of handing down the process to the next generation of how to hear that voice, of how to understand vocational direction and calling, how to understand the spiritual particulars like the individual calling, because there is no blueprint. There is no formula. However, it is universal. It's like universal and specific at the same time. So we have to learn how to hand down the universals, hand down. Here's the process of hearing the music to dance to. Here's the process of quieting down the other voices and hearing the the true voice of the self, the higher voice of the self, the voice of the spirit. We haven't done that. And so it's kind of like every man for themselves at a certain point. And, you know, to my, to my next point, I think we haven't explored the different ways that people engage the process. The process is universal, but each personality type engages that process differently. I mean, from an Enneagram perspective, I think there are certain types who outsource that process of finding a path, finding a vocation, finding a a mission where like, obviously the, the, the more extroverted types, the threes and the sevens and the eights, and sometimes ones, it's like the world, the external world tells them what it is they should be pursuing. Like with threes, it's like whatever's the, of the highest status in the social world. And sevens, it's like whatever's the most, seems like the most fun. And for eights, it's like whatever it is that I can do that will sort of put me in charge. <laughs> and ones, it's like, what what would be the most good I can do? What's the worst thing that I can fix? Like, let me find the worst thing that I can fix. And so instead of turning inside to hear that voice, there are a lot of personality types that look outside of themselves and get data from social interactions and from the external world and then make those decisions based on what feedback they're getting from other people and feedback they're getting from their social circles and feedback from, from the society at large. Whereas the introverted types, the fours and the fives, sixes sometimes can go either way. It's always a battle for sixes, but nines, it's like you're looking inside yourself constantly to try to find what's happening in there. You're trying to mine for the gold that's inside yourself and really blocking out what's happening in the world around or trying to like fives are they're trying to block it out and fours are trying to block out 
what other people are imposing on them as far as social structures and those kinds of things. And, and nines are trying to block out the conflict. They're going inside themselves to, to block out chaos and conflict. And so sometimes the introverted types have a better understanding or maybe they can hear, they hear the, they hear the music, but then they, the flip side is it's harder to put yourself into the dance. It's harder to get the energy or, you know, the enthusiasm to go out and to then assert yourself into the world where it's the flip side for the extroverted types. So they, they don't hear the music, but they're dancing. It's like, I know there's music somewhere and I'm, all I know is I should be dancing. You know, it's, it's vice versa where, they have to turn inward and, and the introverts have to turn outward. But I think that's an interesting dynamic that people aren't thinking about all the time. Depending on what type you are, your the focus of your energy should change to, okay, I've either got to quiet down what I'm inputting from other people and really hear what's happening inside of me, or I've got to take what I can hear inside of me on the flip side and put it out into the world at some point. And maybe that's where, maybe that's where going back to me personally, it's like, I knew that I should be doing something creative. I knew that I should be using my, you know, I I should be doing something academic on some level, but it didn't match up with what I saw. I, I, I was afraid to, I was afraid to assert that into the world. I was afraid that it wasn't going to be enough. I wasn't going to make enough money. I wasn't going to have any opportunities or financial security or whatever that is. And so that's where, that's where I changed directions. It's not because I didn't hear the voice. It's because I was afraid to, I was afraid to share what I was hearing with the world to engage the world in that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes perfect sense, especially as, as a five, right? that uh, I, I think fives are often grounded in a scarcity mentality. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Like I'm not going to have enough energy. I won't have enough feelings. I won't, I don't have enough knowledge or expertise, even though you know more about it than anyone in the entire room in your mind, you're like, yeah, but I still need a little bit more. Right. Right. Like there's still this one part that nobody else has thought about that I haven't figured out yet. Um, and so that makes perfect sense. And I think, I think there's, there's a metaphor that's from my favorite folk song. It's called Dissect the Bird by John Craigie. And you've probably heard me talk about this before that, mm-hmm. that I think speaks to exactly what you're talking about. And the, the, the song just basically says like how stupid it is, how silly it is to dissect a bird to try to find the song that's inside of it as if it has like a song part, right? And you're like, man, why is that bird singing? Let me like, let me like perform an operation and, and find the song box. Like it doesn't work that way. And he goes through all the things in life that have to happen in your ecosystem for you just to exist the way you do. That it's like part biology, right? So it's genetic. It's also part of your culture. It's like, it's, you know, if, if you're like looking at, if you're looking at birds, right? It's like, we've learned that, we've learned that some corvids can actually, uh, create trauma paths in their brains and have funeral, like funeral rituals that they do. Um, So there's like trauma that's involved. Um, 
there's your climate. And anyway, all of these things go into that one moment where that one bird makes one note. That if you change any of those factors, then that that one second where that bird makes a voice is going to be different. And so, so I, I think about that, like when we're talking about the genogram, we're really talking about like an ecosystem, right? Of like, you're the, we're the bird sitting in the tree and for whatever reason, we get a glimpse of the thing that brings us life in that moment. And we're like, well, why didn't that happen 20 years earlier? Or why did that happen at, at seven? And then I forgot about it for the next 30 years. Mm -hmm. What's happening in my ecosystem. And, and I think that also explains it, There's also an answer to that question and answer, not the answer, but an answer to that question is that, that, Oftentimes, to go back to your introvert and extrovert analogy, if, if we're thinking about like introverted, extroverted in our in our like ecosystem, in our family system or whatever, mm -hmm. is that oftentimes we actually use that to protect ourselves from experiencing that calling. Or, or let me say it a different way. We use our calling to protect ourselves from the environment, which sounds which sounds kind of strange, but it's like. I, I work you know, like working with a lot of working with a lot of ministers, a lot of helping professions, folks, nonprofit folks that. They're like lives are like centered around this calling. And I remember a student saying to me once, cost, don't steal my miracle when uh, she was talking about her calling and hmm. we were doing some deconstruction stuff. And in her case, and this is the case for a lot of us, is that if I just say like, like if I have a calling from God, then I actually don't have to deal with myself so much. <laughs> Right. Like who's going to argue with that? Well, take it up with God. Right. Take it up with my calling. Take it up with the universe. And so in some ways we can actually use that to escape the impact of our ecosystem around us. And I think introverts and extroverts, introverts can use that introversion um, and, and find reasons not to act and say, well, that's just not part of my calling. And extroverts can have a calling as a way of interacting with the world and putting it off on their calling. So. I don't know if that makes any sense. Yeah, it does because it works because in my that, head. Hundred percent, because that's what happens. But for for those, and it's not extroverts per se in right. in any in enneagram terms. It's it's people who get their energy from the world around them as opposed to their energy from within. But but they will. So if you're if you're externally focused, then you'll be successful at something and go see look this is my calling i'm good at it i made a lot of money or people think i'm really talented or whatever it is and it's not your calling but it's just that you're so gifted in connecting and doing the things you might be good at doing the things that other people value without fulfilling your calling so you know, and in, someone who's internally focused might say, well, you take it up with God. This is what God told me. This is what I'm doing. Don't don't dig any deeper into what's happening. An extrovert might say, look, look, look at what's happening outside of me. Look what, at what I'm doing in the world. It's obviously my calling. Like, I'm really good at this and people pay me to do this. And I've been recognized for doing this and all those things. It, it's obviously God wants me to do this. And it's like neither of those are necessarily true. 
They both might be true, but only you can figure out if it's really true. Are, are you using, you know, are you using God as a defense mechanism against finding out what's really happening on the inside? Or are you using God to justify doing something that gets you recognized by the world around you? Both of those things are equally possible. And it, neither of them are definite. I mean, you you may or may not be doing those, but but both of them, you have to turn and look inside to find out. You have to go deeper within yourself to find out if that's really what's going on inside of you. Yeah, and so, like going back to going back to our our experiences, and and you made the comment about like you you didn't see things or you did see things and didn't act on them, or you missed cues, things like that. See, I, I don't know that I don't know that that's possible. I would go back and say, like, well, what environment are we in, right? That that's producing that's producing the that's producing the desires, that's producing the opportunities, that's produ- you know, like, what's our worldview that we have, and it's quite limited, right? And so, that that again, I I, I just think that question is so interesting. Of like, how are you able to see it? And not, I don't mean you in particular, but I just mean in general. How 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 are you able to see at the moment when you do and you, and then you look back and you're like, it makes sense now. I got it. I can't believe I missed all that. It's like for a calling it's, and I may have said this earlier for a calling. It's almost like you work backwards as a detective that you solve the mystery and that reveals the clues, right? Instead of following clues and you're like, ah, finally I found it. You like have a moment, right? Or, and typically it's not a moment, right? You have like an ex- series of experiences or a season of life and you get it. Mm-hmm. And then you look back and you realize, holy smokes, I've been following, I've been following breadcrumbs the whole time. And so the question is like, well, n- not in a way of judgment, but like, well, what was happening in my life that I couldn't see it? And that's where I think it gets really interesting. And that's where I think we have to deal with and explore ourselves and, you know, the, the very tiny little world that we live in, that we occupy. Yeah, because it's both. It's both environment and internal composition and internal work. It's like there, it's an eternal dance. And that's why we keep going back to this metaphor because, because the, the dance floor is arranged in a certain pattern. The dancers around you are dancing in a certain pattern that dictate a certain way. The melody dictates a certain way to dance. But then there's something within you that responds to what's happening around you, to the melody you hear, to the to those you're dancing with, and to the dance floor itself. That re- it should respond, ideally, in a certain pattern. In in a highest, there is a highest way to respond, but it is still a dance. There still is. A, a play there. We're, we're playing with these things. There's a give and take. There's there's a grace to it. And there's an art to it. It's like saying, did you do the art right? Well, I did the art how I did the art. Like, there's not a right and wrong. I'm, you know, it, it. there's beauty. There's beautiful and there's ugly, but there's not. It, it's It's a dance that we must respond to, but also engage with in, in a way that's playful, in a way that's fun. And that's not, there's, that's not 
in accordance with a rule book, if that makes sense, or a manual. Yeah, if if you're if you're talking about right and wrong, it's probably not art, right? It, I mean, it's probably something else. It's a math test. It's a math test. Yeah. <laughs> so I was thinking about the genetics that are in play in the Enneagram, you know, the part of ourselves that we bring to that ecosystem that responds in a certain kind of way. And I was thinking about the two of us. So this might be a helpful way to unpack it. You tell me if 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 this this resonates. So, so as a nine, I gravitate toward reflecting the environment around me, right? And, uh, and also gravitate toward any kind of like external, external feedback. Um, and so it would make sense for me being surrounded by educators, right? Mm -hmm. From the jump. I mean, like mom was bringing us, mom was like bringing us to her classroom when we were toddlers and teaching class with us sitting in the back, right? Uh, I mean, we get to school at 7 a.m. so she could work, and then we would stay until 5.30 when she had to go, when you know, when she was done with her meetings and getting all of her stuff together. So it's like our whole lives. And then we go home and do homework. Our whole lives are just school and educators. Those are our friends. For me, that then that I would reflect that or take that on. Hey, you know what's funny? I'll, don't forget where, you're, where you are, but when uh, I... I multiple times Still I got trapped. sick, multiple times I got sick at school and there was no one at home or no one to take me home, obviously. And I, I sat under, underneath mom's desk. Yes. I got out of my class and I went underneath mom's desk. Like I didn't sit in her chair. I didn't sit in the back of the room. I literally just climbed underneath mom's desk and I laid there. For, I don't, I don't know. I have no idea how long it was. It might've been the rest of the day. It might've been an hour, but like, no, obviously no iPad, no toys. I just laid under mom's desk and like, I would kind of peek out and like, look at the kids and see, you know, some of them would, some of them might try to mess with me or whatever, but I, I completely for completely forgot about that until just now when you started saying that, but, but I have real memories of just being under the desk yeah. while mom taught. Bro. I remember sitting in mom's storage closet with, with the lights off and she had rolled her TV card in there with me and put in the VHS of Jurassic park in Spanish <laughs> and had turned the volume down and had subtitles. And I remember spending like the day sitting in her closet, not making a noise while she taught watching Jurassic Park in Spanish as like a seven-year-old. Yeah, that wasn't a storage closet. That was just a closet. You were just in a, clo in a closet. <laughs> there was not room. There was like only you and would have fit in there with the with the TV and VCR. <laughs> with the TV card. Exactly. And, and their pinatas. All of, you all had of to have pinatas. been, your, your face must have been like nine inches from, from the TV screen. <laughs> If yeah, I remember but is, I mean, correctly. yes. Yeah. yeah. Like that's our whole life, man. Right. Right. It's, it's like kind of incredible. And so, so it would make sense that as a nine, I would reflect that from a very early age. And I think as a five, it makes sense to me that you're going to spend a lot of time trying to work this out, trying to like investigate this thing. Um, and, and so, so I think about like 
all of the decisions that you're making, right? And uh, the way that you're going to make sure that you have mastered whatever this thing is before you go forward with it, even if it takes you like what could be more five than to take decades, right? It's, and so, so I think like that, that actually, I think that fits for us, right? Does that make sense? It, it does. It does. But there's still a part of me that's like, that's like frustrated with myself for not having cracked the case sooner, you know, for, for not having connected the dots sooner, because that's what all my brain is doing. And I think that sort of that, you know, that's sort of a working definition of, of creativity is, is being able to connect dots that other people haven't connected. And like, that's what my brain is trying to do at all, at all times. And yes, like to your point, like I would give anyone else looking at anyone else looking at their life, I would give them a measure of grace and under like total measure of grace and understanding for like, you know, this is where you're at. But for me, it's like, God, how did like, how did I miss it? Like, how did I not connect those dots? And I didn't, I obviously didn't have to like, uh, you know, God opened doors at at, around every turn and, and made, you know, raised valleys and and lowered mountains. But there's still that part of me that goes, you know, like, be like, like not like you didn't get out of the escape room, you know, in time, like the buzzer went off or, or like, or like you find the clue to get out that was, it was just, it was like right under your nose the whole time. And you're like, what, how, like, how did I, how did I miss that? But, but here's maybe a a way to sort of wrap up what we've been talking about, especially as it relates to the genogram. I'm listening to, what is it? The abolition of man. I'm listening to CS Lewis's abolition of man. I should say I'm reading. It sounds better if I say I'm reading, but I'm actually listening to it. And he's talking about, He's talking about Darwinism and how evolution, the, the, the underlying energy, the underlying motivation for all of us is the propagation of the species, is to move our species forward into time, to continue the evolution of the species. That, that's ultimately what is at the, when you go down to the bottom of Darwinism, that's that's at the bottom. Like you can't go any deeper than the desire to propitiate your particular genes into the future. Well, C.S. Lewis, first of all, he says that's kind of weird because no one has ever talked like that before. Like no one has ever gone, man, I really wish, I'm really hoping I can get my genes into the future. Like no one in the history of mankind has ever made a conscious effort, a conscious effort to get their genes into the future. And so, so he says, no one has ever thought like that or talked like that. And even if, if that was a true motivator, then you would sacrifice even your children for the good of your grandchildren, but, or, and great grandchildren, but no one would sacrifice the needs of their children for their their future offspring. 
So he's th that's point number one. But the point I, I wanted to get to in relation to the genogram is that he says that humans look back just as much, if not more, than they look forward. And so if our primary driver is the future of our species, of the future of our genes, that doesn't make sense. Like, why do we spend so much time looking back? Why do we, why do we worship our ancestors? Every religion that's ever been throughout the dawn of time, the dawn of our species has revered their ancestors and elevated their ancestors, if not worshiped them. We, go, we spend so much time honoring our ancestors, studying our ancestors, studying what they did that was, you know, we just spend so much time looking back. And in compared to what you would expect from a species whose sole purpose is to move their genes into the future. Isn't that kind of a wild way to, to think about Darwinism? Yeah. And it, it just, it makes me wonder then let's, let's say, are those two mutually exclusive? This idea that I, that I spend my entire life obsessing over my history or obsessing over what happened in the past, right? My past, our past, collectively, individually. And also I've, I'm like driven by this, this, I don't know what you'd say, like this evolutionary impulse to continue. And I wonder if they're, if they're, if they're not mutually exclusive, right? If and they actually may, work, if they actually work together, they might, right? Like, they might. That's part of. Make, go ahead. It, it doesn't, doesn't make, make. It wouldn't make sense in the way that you in the way that we do it. Like we would, if that was our primary driver. To his point, we would. There's only a small subset of academics in if you're if you're taking the course of human history. There's only this small subset of people that talk about our motivations in this way. Like no one else has ever been conscious of the of their own desire to sow their genes into the future. You know what I mean? That's never been a driving factor. Like you love your kids and you do your your damnedest to keep them alive and keep them healthy and strong but that's never been, but it's never been for the purpose of moving your genetic material into the future as a species and so for someone to go aha i found this this unconscious motivation that has driven all of life from the beginning of time it doesn't it doesn't add up to what you would expect and the same can be said for, for all the time we spend remembering, all the time we spend looking back. Because consciousness, consciousness is always this dance of past, present, and future. Yep. Not just future. It's, it's, like, it's just as much past as it is present and future. Yeah, and I, I've, I've read somewhere that I thought was really interesting that that's actually what separates us from the animals is, is our, our like pathological need to make meaning out of our experiences. Mm -hmm. 
that it's not the ability to think critically. That's actually not it. It's beyond that. It's the ability or the desire, the compulsion to make meaning out of our past. And, and I also think that's, that's both like we do it compulsively. And I think it is in some ways a survival, a survival mechanism. There may be some evolutionary connection. What I mean by that is like the, the hope is that you have an identity and a connection to the world through your past that means something, right? That you are a part of a larger ecosystem of relationships, of legacies, um, of things that matter. The terror is that you you investigate those or you you look around and you it's nihilism, right? And you realize, oh my God, there is no meaning. I've spent my whole life looking at this. There's no meaning to any of it. Um, and so I, I, I think like our, our obsession with looking backwards to understand who we are may in some ways have like an evolutionary connection, right? Where that's, that's part of how we give reason to our suffering. That's part of how we persevere through hard things, right? That's part of like how we continue to move forward is that's, this has all got to mean something. It's like, it's like the, we, we talked about this before. It's the, it's the Greek the Greek myth of, of Orpheus, right? Who loses his wife. She dies and he goes down to Hades. He, you know, he navigates through that world. And the, the deal is she can come back with him to the, to the living, but he can't look at her until he gets to the other side, back to the living. So she follows him all the way back. And at the last minute, something happens and he reflexively turns and looks at her without thinking. And in that moment, she disappears. And that's kind of like the, the, I think that's that, that's maybe a voice for the the terror that that we might feel or the angst that we might feel if we go through all of this and then suddenly we look at it and realize, holy shit, I, I don't get it. None of this means anything. Um, yeah, we dissect. I, I've, the... I've got like I've gone through this whole journey, and now I'm like I look at the thing and I turn. It turns out I don't even know if it was ever really there. Which is dissecting the bird. It's like we. It's like it would be like dissecting the bird and not finding the music, not finding the song. Yep. Because it's the wrong, you're looking in the wrong place for the song. Yep. And so I don't know where I was headed with this, but why do we, oh, oh I know where I was going. Why do we want to be, that seems like a different, that seems like a different motivation like the the desire to be remembered and the desire to have our life mean something seems to be seems to not appears to not fall under the same umbrella as moving my genes into the future it seems to be a different a different class of motivation that my life means something that people remember what I put into the world, which is like, I want people to look back at my life. Not just that I want my genes into the future, but I want my genes in the future and I want my genes to look back at me as someone who gave them something, as someone who handed them down something good, as someone who handed them down something meaningful. And maybe that's where 
maybe that's where C.S. Lewis is headed, is that we look back and we remember people for what they meant to us. We don't look back and remember people for what they did to get their genes into the future. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. those, yeah. those seem like two different <clears throat> baselines. It's like, it, it is to me like the song and the anatomy of the bird. Like you can't look into the bird to find the song and you can't look back at the genetic process of evolution of Darwin, Darwin's evolution and find the meaning it. Those are two different baseline, two different motivations at the bottom. And so they, because one doesn't fit into this substructure of the other from as best I can tell. And that's why that's why that struck me so deeply when when uh, C.S. Lewis, when I read that, when I heard that from C.S. Lewis, and it, it fit right into our. We were already talking about the genogram, and he's he was referring to our our focus on remembering, our focus on looking back, and and that's what what we're doing is trying to make meaning of make meaning of the people who meant something to us you know, to, to preserve that meaning, to, to, uh, to celebrate, we're trying to celebrate that meaning and then incorporate, incorporate that song into our own, into our own lives. Yeah. And we're at times we know that we're trying to do that. And at times we're just doing it because we don't, because that's how, that's who we are. Right. Yep. Yep. There are times where you want to ritualize it and you want to make sure that you're you're, you're aware of the, of what you're doing. And then the other times where you're just like, it, you're selfing, right? <laughs> like, yeah, that's, you, you can't help it. That's the way you're wired. We ritualized long before we knew that we were ritualizing as humans. We've been ritualizing for forever. We've always ritualized. It, 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 it predates even, even our understanding of, of motivation, even our, understanding of needs and desires it, the, the ritual is at is at the bottom of consciousness for us yeah yeah well i think that's a good spot for us to wrap up as i i agree unconscious ritualization 100 <laughs> percent. maybe maybe we can maybe we can i i want to talk about un, i want to talk about consciousness unconsciousness and ritualization at some point in the, in the near future but we keep, we, there's so much, there's, we, we keep mining the depths of, of the calling experience, which is awesome. So, all right, dude, talk to you next time.